Hello again, Justin Spencer here. How many of us have forgotten what it's like to be a child? It's a confusing, frustrating, scary thing to be a child sometimes, especially when encountering the world of adults. One of the things that seems true to me about the world of adults is that we often forget the way words can wound. At the same time, we can often forget how words can heal. We learn to protect ourselves completely from both. But children don't often have this protective barrier in place. For them, words still have quite a lot of power. This next episode of Anne of Green Gables has several examples of characters using words to both wound and heal. The results, both positive and negative, ring true to me. For my part, I'd take the healing over wounding any day. Welcome to part four of Storylight's production of Anne of Green Gables. Chapter 9. Mrs. Rachel Lind is properly horrified. Anne had been a fortnight at Green Gables before Mrs. Lind arrived to inspect her. Mrs. Rachel, to do her justice, was not to blame for this. A severe and unseasonable attack of grip had confined that good lady to her house ever since the occasion of her last visit to Green Gables. Mrs. Rachel was not often sick and had a well-defined contempt for people who were, but grip, she asserted, was like no other illness on earth and could only be interpreted as one of the special visitations of Providence. As soon as her doctor allowed her to put her foot out of doors, she hurried up to Green Gables. Bursting with curiosity to see Matthew and Marilla's orphan, concerning whom all sorts of stories and suppositions had gone abroad in Avonlea. Anne had made very good use of every waking moment of that fortnight. Already she was acquainted with every tree and shrub about the place. She had discovered that a lane opened out below the apple orchard and ran up through a belt of woodland, and she had explored it to its furthest end in all its delicious vagaries of brook and bridge fir coppice and wild cherry arch, corners thick with fern and branching byways of maple and mountain ash. She had made friends with a spring down in the hollow, that wonderful deep, clear, icy cold spring. It was set about by smooth red sandstones and was rimmed in by great palm-like clumps of water fern and beyond it was a log bridge over the brook. That bridge led Anne's dancing feet up and over a wooded hill beyond, where perpetual twilight reigned under the strait. Thick-growing firs and spruces, the only flowers there were myriads of delicate June bells, those shyest and sweetest of woodland blooms, and a few pale, aerial star flowers, like the spirits of last year's blossoms. Gossamers glimmered like threads of silver, among the trees and the fir boughs, and tassels seemed to utter friendly speech. All these raptured voyages of exploration were made in the odd half-hours which she was allowed for play, and Anne talked Matthew and Marilla half-dead over her discoveries, 
Not that Matthew complained, to be sure. He listened to it all with a wordless smile of enjoyment on his face. Marilla permitted the chatter until she found herself becoming too interested in it, whereupon she always promptly quenched Anne by a curt command to hold her tongue. Anne was out in the orchard when Mrs Rachel came, wandering at her own sweet will through the lush, tremultuous grasses, splashed with ruddy evening sunshine. So that good lady had an excellent chance to talk her illness fully over, describing every ache and pulse beat, with such evident enjoyment that Marilla thought even grip must bring its compensations. When details were exhausted, Mrs Rachel introduced the real reason of her call. I've been hearing some surprising things about you and Matthew. I don't suppose you're getting any more surprised than I am myself, said Marilla. I'm getting over my surprise now. It was too bad there was such a mistake, said Mrs Rachel sympathetically. Couldn't you have sent her back? I suppose we could, but we decided not to. Matthew took a fancy to her, and I must say I like her myself, although I admit she has her faults. The house seems a different place already. She's a real bright little thing. Marilla said more than she intended to say when she began, for she read disapproval in Mrs Rachel's expression. It's a great responsibility you've taken on yourself, said that lady gloomily, especially when you've never had any experience with children. You don't know much about her or her real disposition, I suppose, and there's no guessing how a child like that will turn out. But I don't want to discourage you, I'm sure, Marilla. I'm not feeling discouraged, was Marilla's dry response. When I make up my mind to do a thing, it stays made up. I suppose you'd like to see Anne. I'll call her in. Anne came running in presently, her face sparkling with the delight of her orchard rovings. But, abashed at finding the delight herself, in the unexpected presence of a stranger, she halted confusedly inside the door. She certainly was an odd-looking little creature in the short, tight, wincy dress she had worn from the asylum, below which her thin legs seemed ungracefully long. Her freckles were more numerous and obtrusive than ever. The wind had ruffled her hatless hair into over-brilliant disorder. It had never looked redder than at that moment. Well, they didn't pick you for your looks, that's sure and certain, was Mrs Rachel Lynn's empathetic comment. Mrs Rachel was one of those delightful and popular people who pride themselves on speaking their mind without fear or favour. She's terribly skinny and homely, Marilla. Come here, child, and let me have a look at you. Lawful heart, did you ever see such freckles? and hair as red as carrots. Come here, child, I say. Anne came there, but not exactly as Mrs Rachel expected. With one bound, she crossed the kitchen floor and stood before Mrs Rachel, her face scarlet with anger, her lips quivering, and her whole slender form trembling from head to toe. I hate you, she cried in a choked voice, stamping her foot on the floor. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you! 
a louder stamp with each assertion of hatred. How dare you call me skinny and ugly? How dare you say I'm freckled and red-headed? You're a rude, impolite, unfeeling woman. Anne, exclaimed Marilla in consternation. But Anne continued to face Mrs. Rachel undauntedly, head up, eyes blazing, hands clenched, passionate indignation exhaling from her like an atmosphere. How dare you say such things about me? She repeated vehemently. How would you like to have such things said about you? How would you like to be told that you are fat and clumsy and probably hadn't a spark of imagination in you? I don't care if I do hurt your feelings by saying so. I hope I hurt them. You have hurt mine worse than they were ever hurt before, even by Mrs Thomas's intoxicated husband. And I'll never forgive you for it. Never, never. Stamp, stamp. Did anybody ever see such a temper? exclaimed the horrific Mrs Rachel. Anne, go to your room and stay there until I come up said Marilla, recovering her powers of speech with difficulty. Anne, bursting into tears, rushed to the hall door, slammed it until the tins on the porch wall outside rattled in sympathy, and fled through the hall and up the stairs like a whirlwind. A subdued slam above told that the door of the east gable had been shut with equal vehemence. Well, I don't envy you your job bringing that up, Marilla said Mrs Rachel with unspeakable solemnity. Marilla opened her lips to say she knew not what of apology or deprecation. What she did say was a surprise to herself then and ever afterwards. You shouldn't have twitted her about her looks, Rachel. Marilla Cuthbert, you don't mean to say that you are upholding her in such a terrible display of temper as we've just seen demanded Mrs. Rachel indignantly. No, said Marilla slowly. I'm not trying to excuse her. She's been very naughty and I'll have to give her a talking to about it. But we must make allowances for her. She's never been taught what is right. And you were too hard on her, Rachel. Marilla could not help tacking on that last sentence, although she was again surprised at herself for doing it. Mrs. Rachel got up with an air of offended dignity. Well, I see that I'll have to be very careful what I say after this, Marilla, since the fine feelings of orphans, brought from goodness knows where, have to be considered before anything else. Oh no, I'm not vexed. Don't worry yourself. I'm too sorry for you to leave any room for anger in my mind. You'll have your own troubles with that child. But if you'll take my advice, which I suppose you won't do, although I've brought up ten children and buried two, you'll do that talking to, you mentioned, with a fair-sized birch switch. I should think that would be the most effective language for that kind of child. Her temper matches her hair, I guess. Well, good evening, Marilla. I hope you'll come down to see me often as usual. But you can't expect me to visit here again in a hurry if I'm liable to be flown at and insulted in such a fashion. It's something new in my experience. Whereat Mrs Rachel swept out and away. If a fat woman who always waddled could be said to sweep away. And Marilla, with a very solemn face, 
betook herself to the east gable. On the way upstairs, she pondered uneasily as to what she ought to do. She felt no little dismay over the scene that had just been enacted. How unfortunate that Anne should have displayed such a temper before Mrs Rachel Lynde, of all people. Then Marilla suddenly became aware of an uncomfortable and rebuking consciousness that she felt more humiliation over this than sorrow over the discovery of such a serious defect in Anne's disposition. And how was she to punish her? The amiable suggestion of the birch switch, to the efficiency of which all of Mrs Rachel's own children could have borne smarting testimony, did not appeal to Marilla. She did not believe she could whip a child. No, some other method of punishment must be found to bring Anne to a proper realisation of the enormity of her offence. Marilla found Anne face downward on her bed, crying bitterly, quite oblivious of muddy boots on a clean counterpane. Anne, she said, not ungently, no answer. Anne, with greater severity, get off that bed this minute and listen to what I have to say to you. Anne squirmed off the bed and sat rigidly on a chair beside it, her face swollen and tear-stained, and her eyes fixed stubbornly on the floor. This is a nice way for you to behave, Anne. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? She hadn't any right to call me ugly and red-headed, retorted Anne, evasive and defiant. You hadn't any right to fly into such a fury and talk the way you did to her, Anne. I was ashamed of you, thoroughly ashamed of you. I wanted you to behave nicely to Mrs Lynde, and instead of that you have disgraced me. I'm sure I don't know why you should let loose your temper like that. Just because Mrs Lynde said you were red-haired and homely. You say it yourself often enough. Oh, but there's such a difference between saying a thing yourself and hearing other people say it, wailed Anne. You may know a thing is so, but you can't help hoping other people don't quite think it is. I suppose you think I have an awful temper, but I couldn't help it. When she said those things, something just rose right up in me and choked me. I had to fly out at her. Well, you made a fine exhibition of yourself, I must say. Mrs Lynde will have a nice story to tell about you everywhere, and she'll tell it too. It was a dreadful thing for you to lose your temper like that, Anne. Just imagine how you would feel if somebody told you to your face that you were skinny and ugly, pleaded Anne tearfully. An old remembrance suddenly rose up before Marilla. She had been a very small child when she had heard one aunt say of her to another, What a pity she is such a moody, homely little thing. Marilla was every day of fifty before the sting had gone out of that memory. I don't say that I think Mrs Lynde was exactly right in saying what she did to you, Anne, she admitted in a softer tone. Rachel is too outspoken. But that is no excuse for such behaviour on your part. She was a stranger and an elderly person and my visitor. All three very good reasons why you should have been respectful to her. You were rude and saucy and... Marilla had been saving inspiration of punishment. You must go to her and tell her you're very sorry for your bad temper and ask her to forgive you. I can never do that, 
said Anne determinedly and darkly. You can punish me in any way you like, Marilla. You can shut me up in a dark, damp dungeon inhibited by snakes and toads and feed me only on bread and water, and I shall not complain. But I cannot ask Mrs. Lynde to forgive me. We're not in the habit of shutting people up in dark, damp dungeons, said Marilla dryly, especially as they're rather scarce in Avonlea. But apologise to Mrs. Lynde, you must, and shall. And you'll stay here in your room until you can tell me you're willing to do it. I shall have to stay here forever then, said Anne mournfully. Because I can't tell Mrs. Lynde I'm sorry I said those things to her. How can I? I'm not sorry. I'm sorry I vexed you. But I'm glad I told her just what I did. It was a great satisfaction. I can't say I'm sorry when I'm not, can I? I can't even imagine I'm sorry. Perhaps your imagination will be in better working order by the morning, said Marilla, rising to depart. You'll have the night to think over your conduct in and come to a better frame of mind. You said you would try to be a very good girl if we kept you at Green Gables. But I must say, it hasn't seemed very much like it this evening. Leaving this Parthian shaft to rankle in Anne's stormy bosom, Marilla descended to the kitchen, grievously troubled in her mind and vexed in soul. She was as angry with herself as with Anne. Whenever she recalled Mrs Rachel's dumbfounded countenance, her lips twitched with amusement and she felt a most reprehensible desire to laugh. Chapter 10 Anne's Apology Marilla said nothing to Matthew about the affair that evening, but when Anne proved still refractory the next morning, an explanation had to be made to account for her absence from the breakfast table. Marilla told Matthew the whole story, taking pains to impress him with a due sense of the enormity of Anne's behaviour. It's a good thing Rachel Lynde got a calling down. She's a meddlesome old gossip, was Matthew's consolatory rejoinder. Matthew Cuthbert, I'm astonished at you. You know that Anne's behaviour was dreadful, and yet you take her part. I suppose you'll be saying next thing that she oughtn't to be punished at all. Well now, no... Not exactly, said Matthew uneasily. I reckon she ought to be punished a little. But don't be too hard on her, Marilla. Recollect she hasn't ever had anyone to teach her right. You're going to give her something to eat, aren't you? When did you ever hear of me starving people into good behaviour? Demanded Marilla indignantly. She'll have her meals regular and I'll carry them up to her myself but she'll stay up there until she's willing to apologise to Mrs Lynde. And that's fine, old Matthew. Breakfast, dinner and supper were very silent meals, for Anne still remained obdurate. After each meal, Marilla carried a well-filled tray to the East Gable and brought it down later, or not noticeably depleted. Matthew eyed its last descent with a troubled eye. Had Anne eaten anything at all? When Marilla went out that evening to bring the cows from the back pasture, Matthew, who had been hanging about the barns and watching, slipped into the house with an air of a burglar and crept upstairs. As a general thing, 
Matthew gravitated between the kitchen and the little bedroom off the hall where he slept. Once in a while, he ventured uncomfortably into the parlour or sitting room when the minister came to tea. But he had never been upstairs in his own house since the spring he helped Marilla paper the spare room, and that was four years ago. He tiptoed along the hall and stood for several minutes outside the door of the East Gable before he summoned courage to tap on it with his fingers and then opened the door to peep in. Anne was sitting on the yellow chair by the window, gazing mournfully out into the garden. Very small and unhappy she looked, and Matthew's heart smote him. He softly closed the door and tiptoed over to her. Anne, he whispered, as if afraid of being overheard. How are you making it, Anne? She smiled wanly. Pretty well. I imagine a good deal, and that helps to pass the time. Of course, it's rather lonesome, but then I may as well get used to that. Anne smiled again, bravely facing the long years of solitary imprisonment before her. Matthew recollected that he must say what he had come to say without loss of time, lest Marilla return prematurely. Well now, Anne, don't you think you'd better do it and have it over with? He whispered. It'll have to be done sooner or later, you know, for Marilla's a dreadful determined woman. Dreadful determined, Anne. Do it right off, I say, and have it over. Do you mean apologise to Mrs Lynde? Yes, apologise, that's the very word, said Matthew eagerly. Just smooth it over, so to speak. That's what I was trying to get at. I suppose I could do it to oblige you, said Anne thoughtfully. It would be true enough to say I'm sorry, because I am sorry now. I wasn't a bit sorry last night. I was mad clear through, and I stayed mad all night. I know I did because I woke up three times and I was just as furious every time. But this morning it was over. I wasn't in a temper anymore and it left a dreadful sort of goneness too. I felt so ashamed of myself. But I just couldn't think of going and telling Mrs Lynde so. It would be so humiliating. I made up my mind I'd stay shut up here forever rather than do that. But still, I'd do anything for you if you really want me to. Well now, of course I do. It's terrible lonesome downstairs without you. Just go and smooth things over. That's a good girl. Very well, said Anne resignedly. I'll tell Marilla as soon as she comes in, I've repented. That's right, that's right, Anne. But don't tell Marilla I said anything about it. She might think I was putting my oar in, and I promised not to do that. Wild horses won't drag the secret from me, promised Anne solemnly. How would wild horses drag a secret from a person anyhow? But Matthew was gone. Scared at his own success, he fled hastily to the remotest corner of the horse pasture, lest Marilla should suspect what he had been up to. Marilla herself, upon her return to the house, was agreeably surprised to hear a plaintive voice calling, Marilla! over the banisters. Well, she said, going into the hall, I'm sorry I lost my temper and said rude things, and I'm willing to go and tell Mrs Lynde so. Very well, 
Marilla's crispness gave no sign of her relief. She'd been wondering what under the canopy she should do if Anne did not give in. I'll take you down after milking. Accordingly, after milking, behold Marilla and Anne walking down the lane, the former erect and triumphant, the latter drooping and dejected. But halfway down, Anne's dejection vanished, as if by enchantment. She lifted her head and stepped lightly along, her eyes fixed on the sunset sky and an air of subdued exhilaration about her. Marilla beheld the change disapprovingly. This was no meek penitent, such as it behooved her to take into the presence of the offended Mrs Lynde. "'What are you thinking of, Anne?' she asked sharply. "'I'm imagining out what I must say to Mrs Lynde,' answered Anne dreamily. This was satisfactory, or should have been so. But Marilla could not rid herself of the notion that something in her scheme of punishment was going askew. Anne had no business to look so rapt and radiant. Rapt and radiant Anne continued until they were in the very presence of Mrs Lynde, who was sitting knitting by her kitchen window. Then the radiance vanished. Mournful penitence appeared on every feature. Before a word was spoken, Anne suddenly went down on her knees before the astonished Mrs Rachel and held out her hands beseechingly. "'Oh, Mrs Lynde, I'm so extremely sorry,' she said with a quiver in her voice. "'I could never express all my sorrow. No, not if I used up a whole dictionary. You must just imagine it. I behaved terribly to you, and I've disgraced the dear friends, Matthew and Marilla, who have let me stay at Green Gables, although I'm not a boy. I'm a dreadfully wicked and ungrateful girl,' and I deserved to be punished and cast out by respectable people forever. It was very wicked of me to fly into a temper because you told me the truth. It was the truth. Every word you said was true. My hair is red, and I'm freckled and skinny and ugly. What I said to you was true, too, but I shouldn't have said it. Oh, Mrs Lynde, please, please forgive me. If you refuse it will be a lifelong sorrow on a poor little orphan girl, would you? Even if she had a dreadful temper? Oh, I'm sure you wouldn't. Please say you forgive me, Mrs Lynde. Anne clasped her hands together, bowed her head and waited for the word of judgment. There was no mistaking her sincerity. It breathed in every tone of her voice. Both Marilla and Mrs Lynde recognised its unmistakable ring. But the former understood in dismay that Anne was actually enjoying her valley of humiliation, was revelling in the thoroughness of her abasement. Where was the wholesome punishment upon which she, Marilla, had plumed herself? Anne had turned it into a species of positive pleasure. Good Mrs Lynde, not being overburdened with perception, did not see this. She only perceived that Anne had made a very thorough apology and all resentment vanished from her kindly, if somewhat officious heart. There, there, get up, child, she said heartily. Of course I forgive you. I guess I was a little too hard on you anyway. But I'm such an outspoken person. You just mustn't mind me, that's what. It can't be denied your hair is terrible red. But I knew a girl once, went to school with her, in fact whose hair was every mite red as yours when she was young. 
but when she grew up, it darkened to a real handsome auburn. I wouldn't be a mite surprised if yours did too. Not a mite. Oh, Mrs Lynde. Anne drew a long breath as she rose to her feet. You have given me a hope. I shall always feel that you are a benefactor. Oh, I would endure anything if I only thought my hair would be a handsome auburn when I grew up. It would be so much easier to be good if one's hair was a handsome auburn, don't you think? And now may I go out into your garden and sit on that bench under the apple trees while you and Marilla are talking. There is so much more scope for imagination out there. Laws, yes, run along, child. And you can pick a bouquet of them white June lilies over in the corner if you like. As the door closed behind Anne, Mrs Lynde got briskly up to light a lamp. She's a real odd little thing. Take this chair, Marilla. It's easier than the one you've got. I just keep that for the hired boy to sit on. Yes, she certainly is an odd child. But there is something kind of taking about her after all. I don't feel so surprised at you and Matthew keeping her as I did. Nor so sorry for you either. She may turn out all right. Of course... She has a queer way of expressing herself. A little too well. Too kind of forcible, you know? But she'll likely get over that now she's come to live among civilised folks. And then, her temper's pretty quick, I guess. But there's one comfort. A child that has a quick temper. Just blaze up and cool down. Ain't never likely to be sly or deceitful. Preserve me from a sly child, that's what. On the whole, Marilla, I kind of like her. When Marilla went home, Anne came out of the fragrant twilight of the orchard with a sheaf of white narcissi in her hands. I apologised pretty well, didn't I? She said proudly as they went down the lane. I thought since I had to do it, I might as well do it thoroughly. You did it thoroughly, all right, was Marilla's comment. Marilla was dismayed at finding herself inclined to laugh over the recollection. She had also an uneasy feeling that she ought to scold Anne for apologising so well. But then, that was ridiculous. She compromised with her conscience by saying severely, I hope you won't have occasion to make many more such apologies. I hope you'll try to control your temper now, Anne. That wouldn't be so hard if people wouldn't twit me about my looks said Anne with a sigh. I don't get cross about other things, but I'm so tired of being twitted about my hair and it just makes me boil right over. Do you suppose my hair will really be a handsome auburn when I grow up? You shouldn't think so much about your looks, Anne. I'm afraid you are a very vain little girl. How can I be vain when I know I'm homely? protested Anne. I love pretty things and I hate to look in the glass and see something that isn't pretty. It makes me feel so sorrowful. Just as I feel when I look at any ugly thing, I pity it because it isn't beautiful. Handsome is as handsome does, quoted Marilla. I've had that said to me before, but I have my doubts about it, remarked sceptical Anne, sniffing at her narcissi. Oh, aren't these flowers sweet? It was lovely of Mrs Lynde to give them to me. I have no hard feelings against Mrs. Lynde now. Gives you a lovely, comfortable feeling to apologise and be forgiven, doesn't it? 
Aren't the stars bright tonight? If you could live in a star, which one would you pick? I'd like that lovely, clear, big one over there above that dark hill. Anne, do hold your tongue, said Marilla, thoroughly worn out trying to follow the gyrations of Anne's thoughts. Anne said no more until they turned into their own lane. A little gypsy wind came down it to meet them, laden with the spicy perfume of young dew-wet ferns. Far up in the shadows, a cheerful light gleamed out through the trees from the kitchen at Green Gables. Anne suddenly came close to Marilla and slipped her hand into the older woman's hard palm. It's lovely to be going home and know it's home, she said. I love Green Gables already, and I never loved any place before. No place ever seemed like home. Oh, Marilla, I'm so happy. I could pray right now and not find it a bit hard. Something warm and pleasant welled up in Marilla's heart, at touch of that thin little hand in her own. A throb of the maternity she had missed, perhaps. Its very unaccustomedness and sweetness disturbed her. She hastened to restore her sensations to their normal calm by inculcating a moral. If you be a good girl, you'll always be happy, Anne, and you should never find it hard to say your prayers. Saying one's prayers isn't exactly the same thing as pray, said Anne meditatively. But I'm going to imagine that I'm the wind that is blowing up there in those treetops. When I get tired of the trees, I'll imagine I'm gently waving down here in the ferns. And then I'll fly over to Mrs Lynde's garden and set the flowers dancing. And then I'll go with one great swoop over the clover field. And then I'll blow over the lake of shining waters and ripple it all up into little sparkling waves. Oh, there's so much scope for imagination in a wind. So I'll not talk any more just now, Marilla. Thank goodness for that, breathed Marilla in devout relief. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Storylight. We would be really grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. We'd love to share these little bright lights of stories with everyone. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. I'll see you next time.